from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we continue our drumbeat coverage of the opponents of the Thacker Pass lithium mine being built on sacred Indian grounds in rural Nevada. Also, Greg Pallast returns to report on today's devastating Supreme Court ruling against voter rights. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica radio waves. We are glad to have you with us today. And today the Supreme Court uh, gave states new latitude to impose restrictions on voting using a ruling in a case from Arizona to signal that challenges to laws being passed by the Republican legislatures that make it harder for minority groups to vote would face a hostile reception from a majority of the justices. This was a six to three vote, folks, with the court's three liberal members in dissent. The decision was among the most consequential in decades on voting rights, and it was the first time the court had considered how a crucial part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 applies to restrictions that have a particular impact on people of color. Greg Palast has again been on this for some time, and Greg, the crime scene today moved to the Supreme Court. Yes, well, uh, we didn't have long to celebrate from my report yesterday, which no. was to applaud the Justice Department for its uh, use of uh, revival of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, if you remember, back in 13, 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the main uh, enforcement provision of the Voting Rights Act called Section 5 preclearance. And so the Justice Department and, and others have been re- falling back on what's left of that, of the bleeding body of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, which says you can't discriminate against voters, come up with laws which block voters of color from voting. Uh, why, by the way, Dennis, America even needs a law like that? It should be in our the DNA of, of America, but we have it for a good reason, for, for states like Arizona and Georgia and others. And today's Supreme Court case gutted now Section 2. I mean, pretty soon we're going to be just, you know, looking for dots in the margins to for uh, protection. So Section 2 was slammed today when, when two of Arizona's new odious laws, one that said that you can't have your church, churches and, uh, tend to pick up uh, votes of, of their elderly and disabled uh, members and take them to the voter registrar's office. They said you can't do that, even though that's going to affect black and Latino voters twice as often, by, they've measured this, twice as often as white voters. And they have other restrictions as well that they put into the law. And the Supreme Court said, we don't care. Other states are doing this too bad. Um, you know, we don't care that the effect, uh, that the effect is racial. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's basically going to put an end to almost all actions. Now, the 
I will hand it to the Department of Justice, the, the new brilliant uh, head of the Civil Rights Division, um, um, Kirsten Clark, who, at, who actually sent a desperate note to the Supreme Court saying, and people have to understand why she did this, she said, Arizona didn't violate the law. Now, why would she say that? She's saying that so that please don't take this case, because she feared the kind of white citizens council known as, otherwise known as the conservative six of the Supreme Court. Just please don't even rule on this case, because she feared this. She also did write the complaint against Georgia, which we discussed yesterday, which was just filed, to try to see if, you know, to, to see if she could avoid any disastrous decision that she feared might come down today uh, by emphasizing the absolutely bald-faced racist intent of the new Georgia laws and many other laws. So basically the door has been pretty much closed on bringing cases that harm black people unless you can prove that they are... Um, that they were deliberate, that you could find documentation that they were deliberately intended to harm voters of color. This is a grim, grim day for voting rights in America. It is horrendous. Obviously, the worst decision since 2013, taking out Section 5, at least Section 2, not much left. It's amazing. Okay, so what, in real terms, what does that mean to the ability? of the Justice Department to be able to defend the right to vote? Does this almost nullify it? Uh, does this make the the legislation uh, that has been mentioned uh, in Congress much more crucial to the situation? Where are we, Greg? Well, two things. Uh, well, my biggest fear is that a lot of the private suits, remember, under the Vo Voting Rights Act, we have the right to sue ourselves as citizens who've been shafted. In other words, if if uh, African Americans are denied the right to vote, a lot of progressive Democrats are harmed that are not black are harmed as well. And as it harms democracy, not just black folk. So you lose your right to sue in most cases. A lot of uh, any outstanding Justice Department cases are going to have a, now a, an uphill battle. And yes, it becomes more vitally important, not only, by the way, to pass the, you know, the big 800-page bill um, that the H.R. 1 that's on the table, that's pretty much dead on arrival. But one thing that Joe Manchin said he would consider busting the filibuster for is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That would restore Section 5, and I think it would effectively might restore parts of Section 2 as well. I know it sounds saying 5 and 2. The important thing is that the John Lewis voting rights bill passes. And remember, Manchin has said he would consider uh, uh, taking steps to allow the passage of that very small bill, but it would really be a gigantic, a gigantic advance. And if not, you know, it's going to be, the, the courts are going to be closed off for most of the actions we have to take unless we can bring cases under state law and state constitutions. And, uh, you know, that's the new place we're going to have to work. And also, flipping states, they can't steal all the votes all the time, as we did see in Georgia in November and January, which is why they are so panicked. But um, it's murder. So, yes, the John Lewis bill becomes much more important than, than ever. And, um, you know, checking your own vote, protecting your own vote becomes more important than ever because there's not going to be a lawyer out there who's going to do much for you.
Yeah, and John Lewis puts it does put uh, some teeth in the law that these really fine uh, uh, civil rights lawyers in the Justice Department can grab onto uh, and use. It's so incredibly important. Now, it is hard to believe, Greg, that we are at a place uh, at this crossroads where uh, the vote is in such jeopardy. Now, let's not forget that this decision by the Supreme Court today, uh, the White Citizens Council, we'll call it, uh, of uh, the courts now, this 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 decision uh, by the court also might have a lot to do with not only all those hundreds of similar uh legislation being brought by various right-wing state uh, legislatures all over the country, this um, this will uh, impo- perhaps empower that, Greg, and it will... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's very dangerous because one of the things it says, it's kind of a bootstrapping situation. What it means is that they're saying, well, if other states are already doing this, what's the harm? That's number one. Uh, the harm is, is that none of the states should be doing things like stopping churches from helping disabled people drop off their ballots. Um, you know, it's not a crime. It was also noted by the court, the court literally conceded that there was not one single case of voter fraud in Arizona because of churches helping people and because of the other provisions of uh, that the Arizona law was stopping uh, voting rights. Uh, not one case of fraud, but they said the fear of fraud is good enough for a fear of fraud that doesn't exist is good enough to actually stop people from voting. Well, what about our fear of not having votes counted, of having votes rejected for no reason? So, you know, white fear is suddenly a courtroom fact on which they can rule. White fear. I mean, it's, you know, so, yes, well, yeah, they're afraid that black people will vote. I mean, that's suddenly a, a defense of indefensible laws. I, you know, there are still things, so if other states are doing it, that's a big problem, because they just say, well, other states are doing it, well, why is that okay? Um, that's a big problem. So, and also, there's another dangerous signal here. Uh, John Roberts joined with the other five right-wingers, and here he's been lauded by the New York Times and others as, well, he's, been, he's not really a right-wing nutcase. Um, he just votes that way. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, you know, it's like, it's, uh, you know, and, and I'm laughing about it, but it's really terrifying. I will say that it also makes very important uh, some of the reports, that some of the things we've uncovered, because, um, for example, when uh, I reported about this massive attack on the voter rolls, 364,000 people challenged by private parties, by basically Republican officials personally challenging the votes of hundreds of thousands of black people. Um, because that's unique and new and, has, and other states haven't done it, if it can be stopped in Georgia, that would not be protected by this new ruling. Now, of course, the way the courts rule going, I don't know what is protected, what what's, uh, voting rights action will be protected. But if we can stomp out the newest, most original Jim Crow tactics, that's, that still seems to be a place where we can take action. So that there's little glimmers of hope, but, but, you know, let's face it, at this point, you know, we've always counted on the lawyers and the ACLU and Fair Fight right. Georgia and, and others and the NAA and the lawyers I've, I've worked with 
to protect us. We think that the law protects us. No, the law will not be protecting us. That's the lesson we're getting out of this. Yes, and um, the Democrats and the Democratic Party and all those folks who for so many years turned their back uh, on these huge uh, warning signals uh, that you and several other people were giving out in terms of uh, where we're going in terms of uh, voter suppression. This is uh, this is an unbelievable wake-up signal. And we are going to see, I think, Greg, for those who love the vote and are willing to fight for it, we're going to see something else happening here that's going to harken back uh, to the 50s and the 60s. And that's we're going to see another version of the Freedom Riders. Because if people don't start to get out into the street and don't start to really put a fire on uh, under the Democrats, um, we're going to see some very hard years. And a lot of people are going to be elected. A lot of people are going to be elected who have stolen the vote, who don't belong where they are, and we're going to see some terrible stuff. This is quite frightening. Well, I think the the one thing, like you say, it's a wake-up call, and yes, we are going to have the return of groups like the Freedom Riders. In fact, we really did back in Georgia in the January runoff, where if you were down in Georgia, you would literally see buses like the Freedom Rider buses going down the street and stopping people. Are you registered? you want to check your registration? Have you mailed in your ballot? Do you need a ballot? So what's happening is, is that the grassroots push to protect your own registration, to check your registration, to get your ballots, to get your ballots mailed. And even when the GOP was madly rejecting ballots, they were stunned and shocked. And the GOP Secretary of State was horrified to find literally tens of thousands of Democrats marching into registrar's office saying, my ballot was rejected, I'm here to what they call cure my ballot, I want my ballot counted, and they had to count the ballots when the voters then showed up. They never expected that. They were shocked and surprised at what people will do to protect their vote, to get it counted. It was it was so inspiring and amazing and just frustrated the vote thieves, they could not, they simply couldn't believe it. And when they had the eight-hour lines... And, you know, and then you had that illegal band of pizza bandits, the Papa John's handing out pizzas and water, <laughs> which is felony crime, felony crime, felony crime in Georgia. You know, people, I didn't see anyone, not one person leave those lines. It was stunning. So what's happening is the more you tell people we're stealing your vote, the more people realize, hey, you're stealing it. It must be worth an awful lot. And it is. And it is. Well... Uh, Greg Palast, gregpalast.com, always on this story. Uh, we appreciate uh, the endless uh, energy and good information that you share with the uh, flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. And you know, Greg, we're going to keep doing this. Uh, the The battle is clearly, the lines are drawn here. And I, I, I don't want to seem like alarmist, but with today's Supreme Court decision... Um, and the, it's only the beginning of what that court is capable of doing. Uh, the vote, the vote for the people is in grave jeopardy. So please stay safe. And uh, we know we're going to be talking to you soon. Greg Palace, thank you. Indeed. Thank you, Dennis. Bye. All right. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We're going to take a short musical break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about 
this battle uh, at the Thacker Pass lithium mine, uh, sacred Indian grounds, another struggle, really is reminding us. It's at its early stages, but it is uh, this battle over lithium and uh, who's going to be a billionaire um, is starting to remind us a lot about the oil and Standing Rock uh, and uh, battles ahead. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is your daily investigative news magazine. It is Thursday here where we broadcast from, and that's the Bay Area over the Free Speech Pacifica Airwaves, KPFA in the Bay Area. We're happy to have you along every weekday from 5 to 6. We turn our attention back to a battle going on. Really, it's, uh, once again, it's one of these, uh, will the Native American communities, their land, their beliefs, their sacred grounds, uh, be sacrificed for 21st century industry in the United States of America, continuing the long genocide against the indigenous communities of North America. This is a battle we're following from the beginning, uh, and we're we're joined again by Max Wilbritt. He is a community organizer and a writer. He's the author of the new book, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. And, um, well, he helped to launch the Protect Thacker Pass Camp. Uh, welcome, uh, Max Wilbert. Tell us exactly where this is all happening. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on again. It's good to be here. So Thacker Pass, or Pahimaha, as it's called in Paiute, is located just south of the Oregon border in northern Nevada. So if if you draw a line between Boise and Reno, uh, and about halfway, that's where uh, this proposed mine site is located. It's in a high desert, sort of sagebrush steppe ecosystem. So there's no trees. It's about a mile above sea level. Um, It's this beautiful, highly biodiverse place where the wildflowers are incredible in the spring. The pronghorn antelope, the fastest uh, land animal on the planet, you know, runs its its ancient migration routes. It's a place where 
Paiute and Shoshone people have lived for generations. It's incredibly beautiful and lush, and it's threatened by this huge industrial project. Wow. All right. Uh, tell us about this project. Give us the uh, the coordinates. What uh, what do these folks who want to build this mine, who are they and what exactly do they want to do? And what's the driving force? Well, the company is called Lithium Americas. It's a Canadian mining company, uh, and they are looking for lithium, as the name implies. Lithium is the main ingredient in a lot of batteries these days, uh, including cell phone batteries, laptop batteries, uh, but also a huge demand is rising for these because of electric cars and uh, the need for batteries to store energy from solar panels for for the nighttime, for example, when the sun isn't shining, or to store power from, from wind turbines when the wind isn't blowing. So there's massively growing demand for uh, these to the tune of like a 30 fold increase in demand over the next uh, uh, 19 years, uh, or excuse me, nine years, uh, 30 fold demand increase in nine years, according to International Energy Agency. So uh, the prices are high for lithium. Uh, the industry is looking for as much as it can get, not just at this place in Thacker Pass, but there's lithium mine proposals. Uh, all across Nevada. Um, there's a big one in uh, Arizona on some sacred Wallapai native land. There's a big one in North Carolina and many others all over the world. These corporations are, are trying to, as usual, get as much raw material as they can to make as much profit as they can. Wow. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, we're speaking with Max Wilbert. Um, he helped to create the uh, uh, protect Thacker Pass. They're resisting this uh, lithium mine. And say a little bit more about what is at stake. Uh, are these sacred lands? Um, uh, and how do the the diggers, how do the extractors propose to deal with such sacred sites? Absolutely, yeah. I didn't know that this was a sacred site when I first learned about these issues and, and got involved. But since then, you know, I've made some friends on the Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone Reservation from that tribe. Uh, their ancestors, you know, have lived there for a long, long time. Um, and uh, I've learned from these elders and these different people that there's a lot of stories out there. There's a long history of human habitation, and it is a sacred place. I really encourage people to go online and, and just search for people of Red Mountain. Uh, you'll find a statement from this group of traditional people from the Fort McDermott tribe speaking out against this mine and explaining why it's so important to them. And, you know, they say it much better than I ever could. So go read their words directly, people of Red Mountain. Um, the, the plan that the mining company wants to do is to turn about 5,000 acres and probably much more in the future um, into an open pit mine. So what is currently now this pretty lush biodiverse uh, natural community with uh, hundreds of species all interacting together, all building soil, sequestering carbon, um, providing life for each other, filtering water, um, creating fresh air. They want to bulldoze all that, dig a hole 400 feet deep, 
uh, across 5,000 acres and, uh, and turn that life into dead commodities, essentially. Turn it into uh, lithium, which would go into factories and come out as batteries to get put in people's cars. So, you know, a lot of people like to say that this type of thing is, is green, that it's good for the planet. And it is true if you sort of do a um, apples to apples comparison, looking at a gasoline car versus a lithium ion powered uh, electric car, the carbon emissions are going to be lower for the electric car. That's just the way it is. But they're not negligible. It's not the emissions aren't zero. It takes quite a bit of emissions to build that car in the first place, creates a lot of pollution, a lot of ecological damage. Um, just like building a fossil fuel powered car does. And, you know, the point that I try and make is that uh, we're not going to save the planet by consuming things. We're not going to save the planet by um, buying products that come out of giant factories produced by massive multinational corporations. That's simply not how we're going to solve the plan, the, the problems that we're facing. Yeah, uh, there's something called mass transportation. Uh, there are many countries around the world that are way ahead of us. Uh, and it really, you know, this idea of the, the individual, you know, the rugged individual. Now we're going to have the rugged individual and we're going to be good Samaritans by having lithium batteries, except that we're going to have to dig it out from uh, the sacred grounds. And we, and we always know that the indigenous community are, are you know, suffers. Uh, they don't get the benefits, but they suffer. They're brutalized, whether it's uranium pits or whatever the pit is. Uh, they're digging Mother Earth out from under uh, the people who have been uh, genocided off it. So we, we care a lot about this story. And you can see people going wild for lithium. What do we know in terms of other lithium factories and the way they're managed or the way this company has managed other factories have they become danger zones uh have these mines you know sometimes when they were building the pipelines they created uh they had this vision in the middle of a pandemic for man camps uh so they'd have uh all these special camps for men who could come in and build the pipeline and then of course uh they would uh figure out ways to provide uh, uh, women, uh, and there would be prostitution and there would be all kinds of terrible things that come out of this kind of, um, uh, extraction, uh, industry. So I, you know, this is just one of those issues, your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not, we're not making up the issues with lithium. They're well known and anyone with basic research skills can look at uh, places around the world where lithium mining is being done currently and is causing quite a bit of harm. Uh, you know, one example is in Tibet where you have uh, rivers that have been poisoned by lithium mining. Uh, you know, of course, that's a colonized territory as well. Uh, you can look in Australia at... Uh, lithium brine extraction, where they're using huge amounts of water, massive and massive quantities of water. Um, you can look in, in South America, in Chile and Argentina, where native communities, indigenous communities down there are being uh, dispossessed 
their their waters being taken, their lands are being rendered uninhabitable um, because there's no water. They were already living in these dry, um, pretty harsh climates, and now these lithium mines have come in and left them with nothing. So, uh, you know, it, it's a reality. These harms are, are there, they're happening now, and they're serious. And they're only going to get worse and worse as this demand for, for electric cars spikes. And, you know, I'll, I said it once and I'll say it again. We can't just rely on swapping out the fuel that's under the hood of our cars. We need to think much more deeply uh, to get to the level of transformation that we need in, in this world. You know, for the vast majority of our time on this planet, we didn't have cars. We didn't have any way to, you know, go 60 miles an hour. It simply wasn't possible. And we survived. We did fine. <laughs> and, you know, it, if it's simply not sustainable for us to have these technologies and these really fancy modern luxuries like electric cars, if it's not possible to do that without contributing to the climate crisis, contributing to the biodiversity and extinction crisis um, and destroying sacred land like this, then I don't think we should have it. It's a luxury. It's not a necessity. Right. Uh, And it was clear that we didn't need to gut and destroy the ancient forests of the West uh, to build beautiful redwood houses, but they went ahead uh, and we lost so much of the, that ancient forest that we need now for the environment. So this short-sightedness for uh, the boom-boom economy uh, of the 1% is, is troubling. It's got to change. We have to see major changes on this. That's why we picked up on this story. We're glad that you were out there uh, making uh, people available. Now, there's a number of uh, events coming up. Uh, there's something happening, I believe, on July 7th in um, uh, Carson City. Uh, there, There's a, a number of actions. You want to just share a couple of them and how people might want to, maybe they want to take a journey, a pilgrimage uh, uh, to see what life is like there and become a part of uh, a gentle resistance. Of course, you know, I, I assume that's what you would like people to do. Yeah, well, uh, if people want to come out and visit the site, they're welcome to. We have a a protection camp that's been set up for almost six months now on the site of the proposed mine. Um, We welcome people to come out and join us. You know, come relatively self-sufficient if you can. We have a kitchen set up and some supplies and so on, so nobody's going to go hungry or um, not have first aid supplies and so on. We have that covered, but um, try and be self-sufficient if you can. We're currently doing a pressure campaign against the archaeology company that's been hired by uh, Lithium Americas, the mining company, to go into Thacker Pass or Pahimaha and dig up all the cultural sites. There are over 1,000 cultural sites, uh, archaeological sites, on the mine site, on the mine location, according to uh, the surveys that have been done out there. And it's a very important cultural site, going back thousands of years. So this, this archaeology company has been hired to go in and essentially loot these, uh, these archaeological sites, these artifacts, potentially even human remains. The, the elders tell us stories of uh, a massacre that took place on Thacker Pass um, 200 or so years ago. 
And so it's, it's very likely that there are human remains, bones and blood and, and, and the, the remains of human being in the soil of Thacker Pass. Um, and that's why the people of Red Mountain have said, you know, destroying this place for a lithium mine is like taking a bulldozer to the Arlington National Cemetery and building an open pit mine on top of that. You know, that's how they feel about this project. And, you know, we need to understand as a culture uh, what, what, what has been done to the indigenous community, uh, what has been done to the indigenous nations. Um, it's not all in the past. I know there's all these stories coming out recently of, of hundreds and now it seems like thousands, tens of thousands of children who, uh, who died or were killed in the boarding school system in Canada and of course, the, the United States has a has a similar legacy. Right. You know, the whole policy of kill the Indian, save the man. Um, but that's that's ongoing, and destroying a people's culture right. is part of the definition of genocide, and that's what we're seeing here. And that's what we're watching very closely here on Flashpoints, Max Wilbert. We appreciate uh, the good information. We're going to take the team up there. Uh, uh, before too long and take a look around ourselves and do some broadcasts uh, to get an idea of what we're talking about. It's always, you know, you, we can talk a lot about it and you can tell us in beautiful descriptions, but uh, nothing like going to see uh, what it looks like and what they're trying to destroy <laughs> in, in uh, this uh, one more manifestation of corporate interests over indigenous communities and all, and the kind of communities and land that we all depend on to survive. So thank you, sir. Uh, be, sa- be safe. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to go back to our interview with Leslie Kane, where we uh, sort of talk about how Flashpoints launched her investigation, really, into a serious investigation into what are some of all these things that so many pilots have been seeing for so many years. It's interesting. Very interesting. Stay tuned. Today's show is, among other things, a homecoming of sorts. It's also a story about the breakthrough of a former senior producer here on this show uh, into the world of UFOs. I should say the breaking open of that world with some pretty interesting investigations that, uh, among other things, led to a best-selling book called UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. I am welcoming back to these airwaves former Flashpoint senior producer, Leslie Kane. Leslie, welcome back. Hey, Dennis. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, I, Among uh, the other things uh, in preparation, I reread that uh, 300,000-word story in the New Yorker. No, maybe it was a little shorter <laughs> than that. Uh, but um, it was incredibly interesting. Uh, and it's, uh, again, as I say, wonderful to have you back. And you, you, you I want to reminisce for a moment before we uh, leap into this uh, vision of yours and what you have been doing for the last... Uh, 15 or 20 years, but you, uh, you in a way, uh, began, you didn't begin your journalistic career at Flashpoints, but uh, we did quite a lit, uh, quite a bit together before you jumped off into the world of um, UFOs and other things. 
You're right. I mean, I, I would say I did begin my journalistic career at Flashpoint, Dennis. I mean, there was part of it was the stories that you and I wrote together and published as freelancers. So maybe those weren't directly related to the work at KPFA, but we did a, a whole series of freelance articles about Burma. And I learned journalism from you during that process. Um, I really learned a lot and I'll always be grateful for that. And then you invited me to come on the uh, staff of Flashpoint and I learned broadcast journalism from you as well. So those two things set the foundation for me, which allowed me to go off into these other weird arenas that I ended up going into. But without that experience, I never would have been able to do any, anything else that I did later. So I'm, I, I really see, see what I learned from you as really crucial to the journey I've been on. Well, thank you. Are you sure all that happened? No, I actually I loved working with you, Leslie. And um, I think we did some beautiful work writing those pieces for the nation. We made some, raised some hell. I remember you talking to the leading drug dealer of Burma, calling him up on the telephone to confirm our story <laughs> to the nation. I remember that. Yeah, uh, and I think you said something like, are you a drug dealer? Uh, do you deal drugs? No, no, we don't deal drugs. Uh, That's right. But but he, any... actually, he actually answered the phone, though. He did. He did. He answered the phone. <laughs> See, that, that goes to show you how important it is to always try, no matter what you think might happen or not happen. You, you have to right. try every lead, push every button, right, pull every string uh, uh, before you're done. Well, you've been doing a great job on that, Leslie, and I, I, I really do. It's, it's lovely to have you back on the air. Um, and now, uh, let's uh, sort of reel it back a little bit. You, I believe you did do your first major story on UFOs on flashpoints. Am I uh, imagining that? No, I mean, I actually did. The first thing I did was a print story in the Boston Globe. And as you recall, you and I had published a series of stories in the Boston Globe, on Burma, and maybe right. even some other topics. So I had a relationship with the editor there in the Forum Sunday section, and she accepted a piece I wrote about UFOs, and that happened while I was still working on Flashpoints, and I had it was based on a report I received from a colleague in France that had been written by uh, some generals and admirals and police chiefs and engineers, a very, very sophisticated, you know, credible group of people in France, and they've done this study on UFOs, and made this conclusion that the extraterrestrial hypothesis was the most valid, logical, and rational one they could come up with for the cases that they studied, which were official cases. So I was really blown away by that report, and I started looking into it. All this was during my, my, you know, I was still working at Flashpoint, and I just remember there was not a lot of positive support at KPFA for this topic, and it was very taboo in those days. So I was kind of quiet about it. Then after the Boston Globe story came out, uh, that's when, you know, you invited me to do 
a show on Flashpoints on this topic. And that indeed was the first broadcast piece I ever did. And I've done a lot since, although usually not as a host, but as an interviewee. But yeah, that was a real, a real moment for me that I was able to do that show on Flashpoints about this topic. Um, so it was really important. And I thank you for that, Dennis. Well, that's the voice that. of Leslie. Uh, well, uh, I, I'll never forget you, and uh, I'm glad you're still here and we're still friends, um, because that, uh, it's an, that's also uh, a pleasure. And it's always been uh, a pleasure to work with you uh, in the print and, and doing this. And I want to, uh, but Mayor Culpa, I want, bef- again, before we leap all the way in, uh, it is true, as you say, that I invited you to do a full hour and I, and you, Monsieur Kaku, was a part of that uh, presentation, mm-hmm. and I was very proud of that. But I was also nervous about the story, about beca- how do I say this? Becoming branded as like a UFO crazy, and I was worried because you know, Leslie, I from Burma. You know, wherever the worst and the most terrible stories are, where the most terrible things are happening against people, that's where this show is. And it really does take seriously giving voice to the voiceless. And I was afraid people would stop believing in us or would think we were we were off a little bit and we would lose the validity and, uh, and this um, marvelous platform that we give to people every day who are struggling. So um, I wish that I was, I had a better vision of what you were seeing and what was going on, but I'm glad you, you continue to do it and it's really nice to have you back. But I wanted to say that. Yeah, well, Dennis, I completely understand that perspective. I mean, not only given the, the kind of show that Flashpoints is, but also the fact that there was so much stigma. I mean, it's really changed now, but there was, it was, there was a, there's basically been a taboo about this. Everybody thought it was a joke. So yeah, it's perfectly reasonable that you would worry, you know, what would people think if we're covering this fringy topic? That's so, you know, that's just a fringy kind of jokey thing. That's what people thought of it. So I have complete understanding for why you were nervous about it. So was everyone else in the journalistic world at the time. Well, I want to ask you what I'd like to do here, Les, is um, I want to ask you just a few basic questions. But I, I, the news person in, to me, in me wants to leap to the news. Uh, and that has to do with a report that came out, I believe, was on Friday. Uh, and I want to ask you about that. But but just, just to sort of set the structure and for, you know, because we haven't done this story much. Um, why don't you tell us what the term UFO actually means and why the DOD is now u- uses UAP? Yeah, that's a good question because people have to remember that when you refer to a UFO, it means unidentified flying object, which means unidentified. But most people consider that term to mean an alien spaceship or a visitor from outer space that's alien. So when you say to somebody, do you believe in UFOs, which is a question people used to ask a lot more than they do now, but 
They're really saying, do you believe aliens are visiting us from outer space? Rather than saying, do you believe there are objects in the sky we can't explain? So those are two different things. So that term has been grossly misunderstood. And that's why uh, the official world and some of the scientists as well have decided to switch to the term UAP, which is unidentified aerial phenomena or phenomenon. And it's because the term UFO has so much baggage also in the culture. It just has an association with, with you know, sci-fi and movies and all the history associated with it that uh, people have wanted just a kind of a cleaner term that's broader, too, that encompasses a lot more than just objects that are flying. But unfortunately, it's been greatly misunderstood. So I'm, I'm glad you asked me to make that clarification. Okay, and sort of what what has um, I remember this, Leslie? And uh, when I was really concerned, and I, I was thinking that I, I don't want you to do a lot of this stuff on flashpoints. I um, what I, I just sort of remember saying I was so afraid that I would lose this platform, and you said, "Well, you said you believe that this." story and understanding this story um, what you were embarking on in terms of UFOs was as important as any other human rights story in the in the history of our work and I, it was hard for me to see that because I'm seeing the bodies every day but is is that what keeps you going in the face of uh, so much ridicule that you did experience uh, before this thing blossomed into um, something else. I, I mean, I don't know if I said that about it being as big a human rights story as anything else. I certainly would not say that now. Um, I mean, there is a human rights component to it, which is that witnesses to these events are mistreated, are made fun of, and have no one, nowhere to report what's happening to them. And they're often traumatized and deeply affected by encounters with UFOs, but that's not the same thing as what the people in Burma are going through now under this brutal dictatorship. You know, I mean, I, I don't equate them at all. So if I said right. that, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. I think you were. Uh, well, the thing is, you needed that. to be, you, you needed to be strong in the story, in your belief. And that, I think that was, I, I think I had that pretty uh, well done because I remember talking about it with my partner, but I, um, I, as I grew to understand what you were doing and what you meant, I, I, I took it in a very different way. Now, let's, uh, we're speaking with Leslie Kane. Leslie Kane, uh, knows more about, uh, what we have been calling UFOs for a long time. She's the author of a best-selling book, uh, uh, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials. She has been a special correspondent for the New York Times. I don't know how you get the New York Times to do this story, Leslie. Obviously, you're a very compelling reporter, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, I had a big story. I had a big story for the time. Something happened, so it wasn't just you know, it was a big moment. And they it was grabbed a big it. moment. And you've had a lot of big moments. Uh, you you you've taken it to television, uh, so as to help to translate what you were doing and to have more people understand it. But let's fast forward for a moment here. A, a report came out on. 
Friday. Does that, what is that report about? Does that take us to the cutting edge of where you are in the research, what people know, what they don't know? Uh, there's a, it was a top secret report, as usual, with the part of it that was made available to the public. Is there anything in that report? Why wouldn't they make the whole damn thing uh, public if they really want to give people a sense of what's going on? And do you think they know a lot more? They have a lot more information than they're talking about? How about answering all those questions? Yeah, that's a lot of questions. But the answer is absolutely. There's a lot of classified information on this topic. And I mean, that's that's a known fact. Nobody's denying that. And so there was this longer classified report. And this report was something that the Senate Intelligence Committee actually requested of the Department of Defense and the the Office of of the Director of Naval uh, of National Intelligence. It was you know compiled by a whole lot of different agencies and they requested it in December uh, because the the political establishment, the Senate Intelligence Committee, members of Congress are very interested in learning more about this and they want to see a body set up that will efficiently gather data and try to figure out what's going on because these things are showing up all the time around our Navy ships and planes and stuff. So this report that came out on Friday was what was what was delivered in response to that request. The public portion was not, I mean, it was interesting. There were some interesting components to it, but it didn't reveal a lot of specifics or, you know, case data. Those goodies were in the classified portion and it's a problem. Uh, Why shouldn't we see everything? I mean, it's a good question. We should be seeing a lot more than we do, but some of it, authorities feel they need to keep classified to protect uh, the information from adversaries, which are mainly Russia and China, who are also studying this phenomenon and who are also trying to understand how the technology works. Because whatever country gets access to that technology first is going to have a huge advantage over the whole world. And so that the technology is really what's of interest to the defense establishments in, in these countries. And uh, that's what they're studying and trying to understand. And, uh, you know, that's the mystery of the whole thing because the technology is so far advanced from anything we have in our arsenal that um, this is the mystery and this is the problem. And uh, that's why it's highly unlikely that it is something made on earth to be honest with you and more and more officials are coming out and saying that now it's just a gradual unfoldment so i you know it's it's a long process there's been a radical change since 2017 in what's happening and how the government sees this and what's coming out and or it's it's just a step-by-step process and so this report was a very important step Part of uh, the uh, why your research was so compelling uh, is that you went <laughs> and interviewed and got your uh, 
documentary uh, evidence from people in the military, people who were pilots, people who were up in the air a lot, uh, people who had, if anybody was going to see any of this stuff, they would, uh, and you would slowly discover that people actually were seeing things that they were questioning and that were being suppressed. Um, you you want to give us a list, a few of those, uh, list a few of those things uh, that allowed, that gave you, that bolstered your belief in your information to get some of these, um, uh, you know, politicians who were in high places of power to admit that something was going on. That's an amazing story, Leslie. Yeah, I mean, there are so many cases, Dennis, that I've studied over the years, you know, going all the way back to um, the 70s even, and the documented in official documents, and I don't know, I could give you some specific examples. There was uh, one very famous one in 2004 that we was part of the story we wrote in the New York Times in 2017 that that, that case became known, and then it has since kind of ballooned into all these different people involved with it coming forward. And I'm sure your, your listeners, anyone who's interested in UFOs would have heard of this case. It's called the Nimitz. It was around the, uh, the, the Nimitz battleship group off the coast of San Diego, off of California in 2004. And the, the pilot, David Fravor, who witnessed this event, this object that looked like a giant Tic Tac has been all over the news. I mean, I think most people may have heard of him and heard of his story. Uh, 60 Minutes covered this recently, and uh, the female pilot involved with this event also came forward on 60 Minutes. That's a long story, but basically, there were two planes with two people each in them, Navy, Navy planes that were flying and observed this tic-tac-shaped object, like a white oblong thing with no wings or any anything on it. It was just a smooth thing that was darting around over the surface of the water. They were looking down on it. And they can see the water all kind of roiled and foamy underneath this object. It, it, they, was, they described it as looking like a ping pong ball bouncing around, but with no physical means of propulsion or no wings. And it, it had previously gone from like 80,000 feet to just above the water in like a second. I mean, it had demonstrated unbelievable speeds that were picked up on radar. And the David Fravor, the pilot, kind of engaged it. And the thing was sort of near, he, he decided to go down lower to look at it. And then the object came up towards his plane. And then it took off incredibly fast. And the fascinating thing was that there was a, a specific location that he and his plane was supposed to go to. It was like a rendezvous point in the air that had specific coordinates to designate where he was supposed to go. And that object showed up at that point before he got there. It's called his cap point. So he was heading for his cap point, and the object got there like instant, almost instantaneously. It was like waiting for him there at that point. So this is one of very famous encounters that happened in 2004. There's lots of uh, radar and lots of people who have come forward who have basically been involved with it. It was the objects were seen over uh, over days by navy ships. So but there there are similar events and dissimilar events, all kinds of events that go back decades. Which you know we can talk about other ones. There's other other events that involve regular people, not just military, that are also extremely compelling. 
Um, why? So, why did you have to sue a NASA? There was a lawsuit against NASA well, about what was. Yeah, I didn't have to, but I wanted to. <laughs> um, right? Why anyway, were you? I should say, yeah. why were you compelled to? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Sorry about no, that. I was, I, no, that's okay. I'm just kidding. Um, I had. Uh, I was. I was working with a team of people on a project that was sponsored by the Sci-Fi Channel back then. Um, to acquire Freedom of Information Act documents about a UFO case that happened in 1965. It was the crash of an object in, in Pennsylvania that was very, very well documented by witnesses. And um, NASA had been there for that event. And so we were trying to get documents from NASA and a whole lot of other agencies. The reason we sued NASA was because NASA told us they didn't have documents that we knew they had because they had already been released to somebody else. It's not that interesting. But we, we had an end to them because they, they were misrepresenting their files and then they were supposed to deliver material to us by a certain time and they didn't do it. And so I was fortunate enough to have a law firm working with me and all the, you know, all the resources to pursue this. So we, um, we just sued them, you know. And John Podesta was... At that, that was how I got to know John Podesta, uh, Bill Clinton's former chief of staff, who has wor worked, was very interested in that lawsuit and has been a real supporter and actually wrote the foreword to my book. So it was an interesting process, but um, we never got one dot. Even though the judge was very supportive, Judge Emmett Sullivan, who's a famous judge in Washington, D.C., very supportive on our side. We, ne we still didn't get any documents that pertain to this case. So that was an interesting adventure, but we didn't get what we were looking for. And what did you learn about UFOs going on Stephen Colbert? Oh my God! Was did he treat you like Dennis? one? And he, no, he was. I mean, I, I I didn't learn anything about UFOs, but I learned what it takes to sit at a table opposite Stephen Colbert. Right? I mean. <laughs> Uh, I mean, what could be more challenging than that on a topic like this, which is open to ridicule, right? So I just had to get a theory, just had to get in the right mindset to deal with Stephen Colbert. And it was an absolutely wonderful experience. I just had such a great time. I was so in such a high state, you know, and I think I did pretty well with him. And he was not. He was just like he was with everybody else. He didn't pick on me because I was interested in UFOs. I think he was kind of taken by the whole thing. Anyway, the, you can see it. It's on my it's on my website if anybody's curious to see that. But it was probably it was definitely I've got a lot of media on this topic, but nothing holds a candle to the experience of going on that show. That was just that was right after my book came out in 2010, and it was because of that show and a couple of others that. The book became a bestseller. I mean, when you go on a show like that, you get a lot of exposure. 